I'm staying today. The episode's dropping on Mondays. It's the man, it's the man, watch that. It's the man, it's the man, watch that. It's the man, it's the man, watch that podcast. Welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast, the place for reviews, rants, and randomness. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to watch a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, I have a very special announcement to make. For the uninitiated, the MattWatchThat podcast takes off the last week of each month. But fret not, because I'm happy to say that to hold you over... I've created the Matt Forgot That podcast, where I rewatch and review a movie I've seen before but don't really remember. I'll also be recommending movie trailers, music videos, commercials, and clips that you might have forgotten. The first episode will be available next week on Monday, January 31st. There will be 12 episodes in total when the Matt Watch That podcast is off. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is Skip It, two stars Watch at Your Own Risk, three stars Standard Fair, four stars Worth Checking Out, and five stars Must See. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. These are my ruminations and observations of the movie, All the President's Men, from 1976. So how'd I miss it? You know, I'm not big on political movies or based on a true story films. Outside of JFK, I can't get enough of that film. But that's more of the conspiracy theorist in me. In school, I was in an advanced history class, the only class I excelled at because I like reading about the past, so I already knew about the Watergate scandal. I've watched newsreels on YouTube from the 70s about Richard Nixon, Deep Throat, and all that stuff. It never really excited me to see a fictional account, but Dustin Hoffman, Robert Redford, and an incredible supporting cast? How can you go wrong? It was directed by Alan J. Pakula, who helmed Clute, The Parallax View, Sophie's Choice, and The Pelican Brief. He was also a producer on To Kill a Mockingbird. The screenplay was written by William Goldman, who scribed The Princess Bride, Misery, Heat, and two titles we've previously reviewed on the Matt Watch That podcast, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and Marathon Man. It was based on the book by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward about the Watergate scandal. This is something to look out for. The term follow the money, which has become part of our lexicon, was introduced in this film. It's June 1st, 1972. Marine One lands in front of the Capitol Plaza with President Richard Nixon aboard. He's headed to the chamber to address the members of the House, Senate, Supreme Court, and the diplomats of Washington, D.C. He walks into a rousing ovation as he prepares to address Congress and the people of the United States. I have a sneaking suspicion that things aren't going to turn out well for Tricky Dick. So, a group of men sneak around the Watergate office building, which houses the Democratic National Committee headquarters. 
Security guard Frank Wills notices that pieces of duct tape was applied to the bolt of the stairway door, preventing it from closing shut. He immediately calls the police to report a potential burglary. As a side note, the security guard who discovered the tampered locks was played by the actual security guard, Frank Wills. The group of men successfully break into the DNC offices via picking the lock. One of the team members gets on a walkie and calls for Unit 2 to tell them we're home, indicating they're in. Base 1, which is located across the street, calls Unit 1 in the offices and informs them that there's activity outside the building. They all go radio silent, with Unit 1 turning down the volume on their walkies. When Base 1 tries to warn them of armed individuals on the 8th floor, the alerts go unheard and the group ends up being arrested. At the Washington Post, we meet editor-in-charge Harry Rosenfeld, performed by Jack Warden of Heaven Can Wait, Shampoo, and the Great Muppet Caper fame. He calls up Bob Woodward and assigns him to the Watergate story, telling him to be at the courthouse right away. He's played by Robert Redford, known for The Natural, Brubaker, The Way We Were, and The Sting. He won a Best Director Academy Award in 1981 for Ordinary People, but no Best Acting statuettes. Woodward arrives at the courthouse and inquires about the attorneys representing the burglars, but finds out that they already have counsel, which is unusual in these cases. He learns that four Cuban-Americans were charged, along with James W. McCord, a security consultant who recently retired from the CIA. This raises a few red flags in Woodward's mind. He reports back these findings to his Washington Post co-workers. That night, he receives a call from police headquarters who has new information found at the hotel rooms of the Watergate burglars. Two entries in their address books say HH at WH and Howard Hunt, White House. Woodward calls the White House, and when he asks for Howard Hunt, he's transferred to Mr. Colson's office, the special counsel to the president. He learns that Hunt works at the Mullen & Company public relations firm. When he finally reaches Hunt, he has no comment due to the ongoing legal proceedings. Woodward digs deeper, investigating people associated with Hunt, peeling the layers of the onion until he learns that Hunt used to work for the CIA as well. When he reaches out to the White House press corps for comment, they offered a statement that no one in the White House was involved in the robbery at the Watergate. But Woodward never asked about that. Woodward and Rosenfeld bring the story to Howard Simons, managing editor of the Washington Post, who is acted by Martin Balsam. He had roles in Psycho, Twelve Angry Men, and A Thousand Clowns. Simon believes they have a story, but wants someone with more experience reporting it. Rosenfeld suggests Carl Bernstein, who has many connections in D.C. He's portrayed by Dustin Hoffman, who starred in Tootsie, Hook, Wag the Dog, and won two Best Actor in a Leading Role Academy Awards for Rain Man and Kramer vs. Kramer. Together, Woodward and Bernstein would break one of the biggest political scandals in U.S. history. Here's a quote without context. It's a dangerous story for this paper. All the President's Men was an intriguing film which isn't surprising considering the level of talent involved. Other actors included are Hal Holbrook, Jason Robards, Meredith Baxter, Ned Beatty, Polly Holiday. Now, I have to say something else about the casting. I've seen pictures of both Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, and there is no doubt in my mind that they went to the casting director, Alan Shane, and said, get me the most attractive actors available, because neither look like Robert Redford or Dustin Hoffman. That would be like me demanding, can you go out and cast Chris Evans as me? 
For those who aren't doubled over in laughter, the joke is, I don't look like Chris Evans. Putting that aside, there were a few scenes in the film where characters are just talking on the phone for over five minutes. On paper, this shouts boring. But with a writer like William Goldman and the acting of Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, these scenes are some of the most interesting. One of my favorite series, The X-Files, borrowed an idea quite liberally from this movie. When Woodward wants to speak with informant Deep Throat, he puts a red flag in a potted plant. Well, The X-Files also had an informant named Deep Throat, and when Mulder wanted to connect with him, he'd put a big X on his window. Later on in the movie, I'm sure it was just coincidental, but the name Scully came up as well, though with a K instead of a C. Now, as another side note, the fundraising organization for Richard Nixon was called the Committee to Re-Elect the President, which was known derisively by opponents of the president as CREEP. They should have workshopped that acronym. But anyway, the pace was good, never boring. Could a couple of places been trimmed? Sure, but this was the style back then. Overall, for a story based on true events where basically everyone knows the ending, it was really engaging. Now a little trivial trivia. Carl Bernstein and his girlfriend at the time, screenwriter Nora Ephron, wrote a draft of the script which was rejected by the studio. The cinematography was captured by Gordon Wills, whose filmography includes The Paper Chase, Annie Hall, and was nominated for two Academy Awards for Best Cinematography for The Godfather Part 3 and Zelig. It was edited by Robert L. Wolfe, who was nominated for three Oscars for On Golden Pond, The Rose, and this movie. The score was composed by David Shire, who wrote the music for Zodiac, Monkey Shines, Short Circuit, and won an Academy Award for Best Music Original Score for Norma Ray. I'm surprised that the score wasn't more prominent, especially under the talky scenes, which there were a lot of. I didn't necessarily miss it, but I always feel a good score can enhance any scene. The runtime is 2 hours 18 minutes. It had a budget of $8.5 million and grossed $70.6 million at the box office. It was nominated for eight Oscars at the 1977 Academy Awards, winning four. I give it four and a half out of five stars. Add half a star if you're a political junkie. If you've seen All the President's Men and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along, each episode, I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. Honest Movie Trailers by Screen Junkies is one of my favorite subscriptions on YouTube. No movie is safe. Blockbusters, fan favorites, critics' darlings, cult classics. They summarize films by pointing out all the Hollywood tropes in the most snarky and sarcastic ways. Ghostbusters. Old-looking, out-of-touch, out-of-shape nerds. Yep, this is what movie stars look like in 84, kids. Home Alone. Witness years of neglect and abuse take their toll on this small child as he shows all the signs of becoming a sociopath. Now, it can get a little nitpicky, but it's all in good fun. You can tell they're big film fans. They also have commentary videos about the making of the trailers. It's always good for a laugh. I'm going to post a couple on the Matt Watch That Playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. 
I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about... Stranger Things. Inevitable Stranger Things reference. There we go. Created by the Duffer Brothers. This series was my second most referenced last season on the podcast, hence the stinger. The first was composer W.G. Snuffy Walden. W.G. Snuffy Walden. Really? You made one for him too? I made a concerted effort to lessen the amount of mentions this season. I know it can get annoying, but I haven't enjoyed a show this much in quite some time. I will admit, I was not on board from the very beginning. It was no fault of theirs. At the time, I wasn't subscribed to the streaming part of Netflix. Yes, I was still getting DVDs in the mail. The first time I saw Stranger Things, it was around award season. Many of my coworkers were part of various guilds, and they received four-year consideration screeners. Sometimes it was selected episodes from series, but Hulu and Netflix always offered full seasons. So when I saw the case for season one of Stranger Things, I grabbed it immediately. I heard plenty of, Matt, you're gonna love it. Matt, you should see this. This is your show. I had to see what everyone was talking about. I was hooked within the first 15 seconds. The scientist running through the hallway, alarm blaring, heads into the elevator, hits the button, no response, doors finally close, gets attacked by a monster. Beautiful. By the time I saw the title sequence, over that brilliant score by Michael Stein and Kyle Dixon of the band Survive, I was fully invested in the series. The Duffer Brothers did a brilliant job taking the best part of 80s entertainment, the friendship of the Goonies and Stand By Me, the powers of E.T. and Firestarter, the creatures from Aliens and The Thing, and the horror of A Nightmare on Elm Street and Evil Dead. And let's talk about the soundtrack. It would have been easy to just select the greatest hits of the 80s, and sometimes they did go with the obvious choices. Madonna, Material Girl. How can you have a nostalgic 80s series and not include Madge? But in many scenes, they pick songs you might have not heard in decades. Cutting Crew, I Just Died in Your Arms Tonight, Corey Hart, Never Surrender, Oingo Boingo, Just Another Day. Most of the actors were unknown at the time, outside of Winona Ryder and Matthew Modine. But their relationships are so genuine, whether it's between friends, siblings, or classmates. It's like they've grown up together and you're watching their home movies. Spoilers ahead. I think season one is basically flawless from beginning to end. I was originally down on season two because Elle was separated from the rest of the group for most of the episodes. I also didn't like the way they treated Max, and their acceptance of her felt unresolved. And that backdoor pilot with the lost sister is one I used to skip all the time. But the last episode does have one of my favorite scenes at the snowball, when Dustin gets rejected by all the girls and then Nancy asks him to dance. It's just a sweet scene and really comes full circle from the first episode, where he offers her a slice of pizza and she shuts the bedroom door in his face. I also think my expectations were so high that it could never be met. And season three, in my opinion, is the most fun. I'm not sure if it's because of the mall or the Russians. The story feels elevated. And I really enjoyed all the characters they added to the groups. Obviously, I'm a huge fan of the series. It's influenced me as a writer and composer. It's perfect nostalgia. A cross-generational show. Highly, highly, highly recommend. Stranger Things has been on for three seasons, 25 episodes, beginning in 2016. Season 4 will be released this summer on Netflix. 
that's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Head over to MattSarosky.com for the latest news and updates, and come back next time for all the reviews, rants, and randomness. He learns that Hunt works for the Mullinan Company Public. Public. When Base One tries to warm them, warm them up, you know, a little cozy. Hey, you're going to be arrested. By the time I taught... <laughs> By the time I taught, I put that. <laughs>